welcome to Primary Care Anywhere, a resident-led podcast from the University of Utah Internal Medicine Residency Program. My name is Katie Harwell, and I'm one of the chief medical residents, and I'll be your host today. Just last week, the Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded to Dr. Harvey Alter, Michael Houghton, and Charles Rice for their research and discovery of the hepatitis C virus, which just so happens to be our topic for discussion. During this episode, we will walk you through the transmission, prevention, and screening for hepatitis C virus, in addition to the diagnosis and treatment. To start us off, we've got Mr. Bill Rubin, a 40-year-old man who presents to your primary care clinic for routine health maintenance. This is his first visit to a doctor for at least 10 years, and he is currently not taking any medications. He does smoke cigarettes, about a half pack per day. He has a remote history of IV drug use in his 20s, but has remained clean for the last 12 years. He wants to know what steps he needs to take to get caught up on his health. In addition to counseling on tobacco cessation, you recommend screening for HIV, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C, to which the patient is agreeable. Now, Keegan, take it away. Hello, my name is Keegan, and I'm going to be talking about how the hepatitis C virus is transmitted, how transmission can be prevented, and the recommendations for screening. First, a little background on hepatitis C. It is the most common bloodborne infection in the United States, affecting approximately 2.4 million Americans. Three out of four of those infected are baby boomers, or those born between 1945 and 1965. In 2012, hepatitis C-related deaths surpassed deaths from all other reportable infectious diseases combined. According to the CDC's most recent data, cases have steadily risen over the last several years, reporting approximately 3,600 cases of hepatitis C in 2018, an increase of threefold from the 1,200 cases reported in 2011. It is also estimated that for every one case of hepatitis C that is reported, there are 14 cases that go unreported, meaning that there was likely something more like 50,000 total cases of hepatitis C in 2018. So, let's talk about transmission. Most persons with hepatitis C are infected via percutaneous exposure to infected blood. The two primary methods of this transmission are in persons who inject drugs and nosocomial exposure. Persons who inject drugs are estimated to account for 70% of new cases of hepatitis C. The steep rise in cases since 2010 has predominantly been seen in young white adults in non-urban areas who reported injection drug use. This is alongside the opioid epidemic. In terms of nosocomial exposure, hepatitis C can be transmitted by exposure to blood products that were given before 1992 when screening of donor blood was instituted. There is also the risk of transmission from non-sterile injections or in patients receiving hemodialysis in medical settings that lack adequate infection control practices. Cosmetic procedures such as tattooing and piercing are low risk as long as strict infection control measures are followed. Hepatitis C can also be transmitted sexually as hepatitis C RNA can occasionally be detected in the semen of viremic patients. Sexual transmission is inefficient, however. There is a higher rate of transmission in men who have sex with men and in persons with HIV. Additionally, hepatitis C can pass from mother to child at a rate of about 5%. However, breastfeeding is not associated with transmission. 
Now that we know how hepatitis C is transmitted, we can talk about how it can be prevented. There is currently no vaccination available for hepatitis C, as strains are highly variable and can mutate quickly. There are studies in the works currently in an attempt to create a vaccine. The natural reservoir of hepatitis C in the population is in persons who inject drugs. Providing harm reduction measures to this population, such as medical-assisted therapy with opioid agonists, and programs such as needle exchange reduce the risk of transmission in persons who inject drugs. Reducing health disparities with expanded access to antiviral therapy among people with active injection drug use is key to preventing transmission. Strict infection protocols should be used in tattooing and piercing businesses. In terms of sexual transmission, condoms are recommended for persons with hepatitis C who have multiple sexual partners, are HIV positive, and for men who have sex with men. Transmission can be prevented in the healthcare setting with routine screening of donated blood and infection control practices to prevent reuse of contaminated equipment. On that note, if you were to sustain a needle stick injury while caring for a patient with hepatitis C, post-exposure prophylaxis is not recommended due to the low risk of transmission and the high efficacy of antivirals if infection occurs. Screening for hepatitis C is recommended because both the acute and chronic phases can be largely asymptomatic with a long latent period before development of liver disease. The American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases and the Infectious Disease Society of America recommend one-time opt-out screening for all persons aged 18 years or older. The CDC and the USPSTF recommend one-time screening in adults aged 18 to 79 regardless of their risk factors, as well as those younger than 18 with risk factors for infection. The CDC additionally recommends screening of all pregnant women. Persons who inject drugs and HIV-positive men who have sex with men are recommended to be screened annually. Screening is also recommended in certain risk exposures, such as persons who have ever received long-term hemodialysis, children born to hepatitis C-infected women, unexplained chronic liver disease and chronic hepatitis, and persons who have received blood transfusions or organ transplantations before 1992, again when routine screening of donor blood was initiated. Screening should also be considered in persons in jail or prison due to a higher prevalence of the disease in these populations. With effective treatments available, the biggest barriers to elimination of hepatitis C are access to testing, linkage to care, and access to medication, particularly among people who inject drugs. The National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine plan on expanding screening and universal treatment with a goal to reduce hepatitis C-related mortality by 65% by the year 2030. They have released a National Viral Hepatitis Action Plan with the goals of preventing new infections, reducing mortality of those already living with viral hepatitis, reducing health disparities, and coordinating the monitoring and reporting of viral hepatitis, with the ultimate goal of eradicating the disease. And there you have how hepatitis C can be transmitted, how we can try to prevent it, and the recommendations for screening. Hi, my name is Casey, and I'll be chatting a little bit with you about the diagnosis and evaluation of a patient with hepatitis C. First, we're gonna take a step back and say that you don't necessarily know your patient has hepatitis C when you first meet them. 
While it's not as hard to diagnose as hepatitis B with the bazillion antibody combinations, um, it does have to be on your radar to know to order the right tests. So let's start with this theoretical patient. First, most folks with hepatitis C infection actually have a relatively mild illness. They often fly under the radar of the healthcare system. The incubation period lasts from two to 12 weeks, and during this time, they can transmit the illness and they have detectable RNA, but their liver labs will look great and they may not necessarily feel bad. Um, during the acute phase of the illness, they can get a little achy, kind of present similar to the flu. They can have belly pain, dark urine, and most will get a little bit jaundiced at least, but not everyone does. The good news is that in the next 6 to 12 months, some of your patients will clear this infection. This mostly happens for younger patients and women, but the bad news is that most patients will progress to a chronic state. Those that do spontaneously clear the infection have no risk of progressing on to chronic liver failure, uh, but they are at risk of reinfection. Let's say you meet your patient during the acute phase of their illness. Say they happen to have a form of hepatitis with enough symptoms that they sought care, or they were a healthcare worker with a known needle stick history and so had been on the lookout for any subtle signs or symptoms. Their labs might reflect an acute hepatitis with elevated AST and ALT, and you might wonder what test you should order to help diagnose them with this illness. Now, the hepatitis C antibody by ELISA is not a wrong answer in this situation, but it could give you false negative results. Their immune systems may not have yet responded to the infection adequately to be detected by that study. So if you're looking at a patient in the acute phase of their illness, you want to make sure that you do check by nucleic acid amplification for the RNA levels. Now, if you are encountering your patient during what you suspect is the chronic phase of the illness, maybe a patient who's had a little bit of an elevated ALT for several years now, or a new patient to you who hasn't seen healthcare in a long time, you would want to check the anti-hepatitis C, and that would give you a good idea of whether or not they've been exposed. But do keep in mind that it does not tell you if this is an old cleared infection or an active chronic infection. And it may, again, be falsely negative in either acute illness or patients that have a impaired immune response. So an immunocompromised patient may never really mount an antibody response that's measurable. So in those cases, you would want to repeat the nucleic acid amplification for the RNA. When looking at a patient who has chronic hepatitis C, you're looking obviously for signs of progressive liver fibrosis um, all the way to cirrhosis. So things like downtrending platelets or albumin levels. But you also want to keep an eye out for all of the extra hepatic disease, um, such as a vasculitis, uh, chronic kidney disease, new diabetes, thyroid issues. And the, one of the more common complaints is just a sense of generalized fatigue. Once a patient has been diagnosed with either a past or current hepatitis C infection, the hepatitis C antibody test becomes relatively useless. You, if you're concerned about reinfection, you would want to, again, check the RNA levels. Um, and if a patient already has a known chronic infection, there's no point in continuing to check those antibody levels. In that case, if you were treating them, working towards clearance, uh, again, you would trend the RNA levels. And that's really the only time when the RNA quant level by PCR is useful, is if you're trying to monitor for viral load and clearance. 
Um, the actual number of RNA copies, even the elevation of AST and ALT themselves, do not actually correlate with risk of progression to cirrhosis or liver failure. So they are not useful to monitor except in the setting where you're trying to get rid of the illness. One important detail is that the RNA levels can actually fluctuate pretty significantly in the first year of infection, um, all the way down to undetectable. So one negative RNA test uh, does not exclude infection. You want to make sure you do check again before discontinuing monitoring. Okay, so now we're at the point where our patient has hepatitis C. You've had the chat with them. You've let them know the bad news. You've answered their questions, and they want to know, what are we going to do next? Um, the answer is to start looking for the possible complications of hepatitis C and preparing them for undergoing therapy. Uh, so what you're going to do is you're going to get, obviously, a comprehensive metabolic panel um, that's going to look at kidney function and liver function. You're going to start looking at their blood counts, looking mostly for platelet levels. You're going to want to get an INR or a PT, and back on your comprehensive metabolic panel, you would have also gotten an albumin. So the platelets albumin and INR are useful for trending the overall functional state of the liver and making you more or less suspicious for whether or not they have progressive liver disease. Very low platelets, very low albumin is certainly concerning for advanced fibrosis. There are ways to stratify your concern for uh, risk of advanced fibrosis. You could obviously get imaging, uh, abdominal ultrasound, uh, but a negative ultrasound does not rule out cirrhosis or advanced fibrosis. Another useful tool is something called the Fib4, and don't panic, there's an MD calc for it, like everything, uh, but this does take the AST level, the ALT level, there's a square root involved, and helps calculate their overall risk of advanced fibrosis. It is pretty specific at both low and high values, but the indeterminate range is indeterminate. And a very important point is if a patient has hepatitis C, there's a lot of risk factor overlap between hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HIV, and it's important to talk to your patient about these, but also test for them as well in the early workup. At this point, you might be wondering, why are we doing all of this workup to figure out how bad their liver is when we're going to treat them with our antiviral treatment and they are going to get rid of this virus and get better? Um, the answer is that in a patient with advanced fibrosis uh, or a patient specifically with evidence of cirrhosis, uh, your treatment management does differ a little bit. You also don't want to forget the big body of hepatocellular carcinoma. A patient with cirrhosis has a 3% risk of developing hepatocellular carcinoma every year. Beyond that, a patient with cirrhosis, of course, has all the risks of developing portal hypertension and the complications that go along with that, the gastropathy, the varices, uh, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. As far as the specifics of treatment, I'm going to let David walk us through that and pronounce all those hard-to-pronounce antiviral names. Um, but knowing if your patient has advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis is important because at this point you'd want to get a genotype testing. Not indicated anymore per guidelines for any uncomplicated case or a patient. If a patient was just diagnosed with hepatitis C, something probably on the forefront of their mind is are they going to progress to liver failure? And it's important to know that 15 to 20% of patients with chronic hepatitis C will progress to cirrhosis over the next 20-year period. 
this is variable though between populations of people uh, when they got their initial infection, meaning that if somebody is a young patient who becomes infected with hepatitis C, they actually are less likely to progress over the next 20 years to cirrhosis than somebody who was over 60 when they first got infected. Um, so that 15 to 20% is different depending on which age groups you're looking at. If your patient is showing signs of advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis, it's important to not forget all of the screening tests and things to monitor that go along with that. So if you're concerned for portal hypertension and a patient needs a screening endoscopy for varices, you need to make sure that that is part of your initial workup. If uh, a patient has cirrhosis, they need to get the six months uh, hepatocellular carcinoma screening test. So an abdominal ultrasound, a multiphase CT, an MRI every six months along with an alpha feta protein. One thing I forgot to mention is that if the patient does have evidence of kidney disease, you want to make sure this is not from the hepatitis C itself. So this is where cryoglobulins or urinary protein could be useful. So in summary, you have a patient you think has hepatitis C. If it's the acute phase um, or you think they're immunocompromised, you want to make sure you get the RNA. And if it's screening or you're more concerned for chronic infection or just to go along with the RNA test, uh, you can get the anti-hepatitis C antibody test. Once you think a patient has hepatitis C, or I guess you know because you did the testing now, uh, you want to make sure you get a comprehensive metabolic panel, a CBC, an INR. You want to also get an HIV and hepatitis B. And then if you are thinking they have cirrhosis, you want to go ahead and do the workup for chronic cirrhosis as well. The next stop is treatment with David, which is mostly good news. Hi everyone, my name is David Hawk, and I'm going to walk you through the treatment for hepatitis C. New direct-acting antivirals have made treatment for hepatitis C simpler and safer than in the past when drugs like ribavirin and interferon were the only options available. With just an 8-12 to 12 week regimen of these oral antiviral therapies, 95% of patients will have a sustained virological response, defined as an undetectable HCV RNA 12 weeks after completing therapy. This response is extremely durable, with 99% of these patients testing negative at 5 years following treatment. Benefits of treatment include preventing the extrahepatic manifestations of hepatitis C infections, as described by Casey, but also improving the long-term prognosis of these patients. In the absence of coexisting liver disease or ongoing alcohol use, treating hepatitis C decreases the risk for progression to cirrhosis and essentially eliminates the progression from compensated cirrhosis to decompensated. There are four things we'll go over, first being the pretreatment evaluation, so who qualifies for treatment by primary care providers, second being medication reconciliation, third, choosing the right treatment regimen, and four, being follow-up testing. Before we get started, there's an extremely helpful website put together by the IDSA and American Association for the Study of Liver Disease that has easy-to-follow algorithms for treating hepatitis C. You can find it at hcvguidelines.org if you would like to follow along. So first, who qualifies for treatment by primary care providers? Casey did a great job of talking about the evaluation of a patient with hep C, and most of our decision points here will be based off of the initial lab work she described. 
Many patients will qualify for a simplified treatment regimen suitable for primary care providers, but there are several factors that should prompt a referral to a specialist right off the bat. First, anyone who has comorbid HIV, Hep B, or hepatocellular carcinoma. Second, anyone who is pregnant. Third, anyone who's be considered for a kidney or liver transplant. Fourth, anyone who's been previously treated for Hep C. And fifth, anyone with decompensated cirrhosis. So the first four are pretty straightforward, but the cirrhosis diagnosis and decompensated designation are a little bit stickier. So as Casey describes, cirrhosis can be ruled in in several different ways. The IDSA notes four ways in their algorithm. First being the PIB4 score. Second, serological tests like the enhanced liver fibrosis test. Third, being elastography like a fibrous scan. And fourth, if sonographic imaging suggests cirrhosis with a nodular liver or splenomegaly, particularly if the platelet count is less than 150,000. If these tests show no signs of cirrhosis, you do not need to rule out cirrhosis with the liver biopsy. But if they're equivocal, then liver biopsy and referral to a specialist would be appropriate. Once you've decided if your patient has cirrhosis, you need to define if it's compensated or decompensated. To guide decision making, the IDSA defines compensated cirrhosis as child PU class A, which correlates with a child Turcot PU score of less than 7. To calculate these, you'll need your patient's bilirubin, albumin, INR, to know if they have ascites, and to know their history of encephalopathy. Patients with decompensated cirrhosis will always need referral to a specialist. Patients with compensated cirrhosis should undergo HCV genotype testing. If they have genotype 3, they should undergo S5A resistance-associated substitution testing to guide treatment. Now that you've completed the first part of the pretreatment evaluation, you need to do a medication reconciliation. Many drugs have interactions with these antivirals, including the common ones such as amiodarone, statins, oral contraceptives, and PPIs. The University of Liverpool has put out a super helpful online tool called the HEP Drug Interaction Tool that helps identify drug interactions and safer alternative therapies. It's easily found by googling HEP C Drug Interaction Tool. An example for using this, say if a patient on a torvastatin are wondering if they can safely receive Epclusa. If you enter these medications into the site, you'll find that Epclusa will increase the circulating levels of a torvastatin and your patient could be at risk for myopathy and rhabdomyolysis. Looking out the alternatives tab, you see that the less potent pravastatin is not at risk for this, and so you can reasonably switch your statin therapy during the three months your patient will be taking Epclusa. Right, so now we've done the pretreatment evaluation and a medication reconciliation. Next, we need to choose our treatment regimen. Of the many treatment regimens available, IDSA guidelines have boiled it down to two for the simplified regimens. 12 weeks of sofosbuvir velpatazvir, known as Epclusa, or eight weeks of glucaprevir bipertentesvir, known as Mavirep. Epclusa can be used in any non-cirrhotic patient. However, for the patients with compensated cirrhosis, it can only be used in genotypes 1, 2, 4, 5, or 6. It can be used in genotype 3 if the resistance testing was negative. Mavirep, in addition to having the benefit of being a shorter regimen, can be used in all patients without cirrhosis and for all genotypes in patients with compensated cirrhosis. Lastly to consider is what follow-up you need to do with patients during and after therapy. During therapy, you need to keep tabs on your patients with diabetes and those on warfarin. These antivirals will increase insulin sensitivity, and so diabetics should be counseled to watch closely for hypoglycemia, and those on insulin may need dose adjustments. 
patients on warfarin also need to be closely monitored as patients on direct-acting antivirals can become subtherapeutic. Once the patient has completed the treatment regimen, you retest for hepatitis C RNA 12 weeks post-therapy to assess for a sustained virological response. The 1-5% to of those who do relapse largely do so in the first 12 weeks after therapy, so this testing algorithm should catch anyone for whom treatment did not work. And that's that. There's a fair bit to remember in deciding who qualifies for these simplified treatment regimens, what evaluation to do, and what medication interactions to look for. If, like me, you need something to look at to really put this home, you can always find the IDSA recommendations at the hcvguidelines.org replete with easy-to-follow algorithms to start treating your patients with HCV. Great work, Keegan, Kelsey, and David. Now let's take this information and apply it to our case. If you recall, we have Mr. Bill Rubin, our 40-year-old man who currently smokes half a pack per day and has a remote history of IV drug use. We have ordered HIV, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C testing. Even in the absence of risk factors, we would still recommend one-time hepatitis C testing in all patients 18 years or older. HIV and hepatitis B testing are negative, but Mr. Rubin's hepatitis C antibody test is positive. You order follow-up testing including a CBC, CMP, and INR, which come back normal. Quantitative HCV RNA testing is also ordered and returns elevated. You calculate his FIB4 score, which takes into account a patient's age, AST, ALT, and platelet count to assess the risk of having advanced fibrosis. Mr. Rubin's FIB4 score is less than 1, basically excluding advanced fibrosis, and further screening for hepatocellular carcinoma or esophageal varices is not warranted in your patient. To inform your discussion regarding treatment of your patient's chronic hepatitis C, you pull up hcvguidelines.org. Mr. Rubin is not on any prescription, herbal, or over-the-counter medications at this time. However, he is interested in starting Vraniclin for tobacco cessation. So you check out the University of Liverpool's interaction checker, which does not expect an interaction. And you decide to start treatment with cefosbuvir velpatosphere, one of the treatment regimens for patients without cirrhosis. Mr. Rubin returns to your clinic 12 weeks following completion of this dual medication regimen, and repeat testing for HCV RNA is undetectable, which demonstrates a sustained virological response for your patient. No further liver-related follow-up is needed for Mr. Rubin. A few key takeaways. All patients warrant one-time testing for HCV with an anti-HCV antibody test regardless of risk factors. Patients with either a current or remote history of IV drug use, men who have sex with men, pregnant women, healthcare personnel, and patients with HIV may all warrant more frequent testing. Patients with chronic hepatitis C should be evaluated for cirrhosis. This can be done by calculating a FIB4 score, a fibro scan, or with abdominal imaging. Finally, patients without cirrhosis or with compensated cirrhosis, you may consider treating in a primary care setting, whereas those with decompensated cirrhosis or certain comorbid conditions would benefit from referral to a specialist. Thanks for listening. This is Primary Care Anywhere, and we'll see you next time.